Man, you're getting killed out there. <sighs> Tell me about it. I feel like Rocky after 15 rounds with Apollo Creed. Speaking of Rocky, did you know that Sylvester Stallone wrote the first draft of the movie in only three days? Did you know that Sylvester Stallone permanently flattened out his knuckles from punching the side of beef? What about Burgess Meredith? He had lived his line in the audition, which landed him the role of Mickey. Or that a destitute Sylvester Stallone turned down $350,000 because the studio didn't want him starring in it? <gasps> well, you can find this out and much, much more by listening to Rocky Minute, the fan podcast that covers the Rocky movies one minute at a time. You can find us on DuelingGenre.com. Now get back out there and knock this bum out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski. And I'm Todd Mack. And this week we're discussing Don Quixote from El Ingenioso Hidalgo, Don Quixote de la Mancha. <laughs> I'm so glad that we finally made it here. I'm so glad you're back. Welcome back, Todd. Thanks. Thanks. I wouldn't miss this for the world. <laughs> This has been on our to-get-to list since we began the podcast well before you retired in episode number 200. Yes. Well, listeners, if, you, uh, if you're new to the podcast and you haven't heard Todd touch on this, Don Quixote was written by Miguel de Cervantes, and it was published in two parts, in 1605 and 1615. It tells the story of a man who reads so many chivalric romances that he loses touch with reality and decides to become a knight-errant and go on a quest for love and also to restore chivalry to Spain. That's it. All right. That's the danger of reading right there. <laughs> this is all, all anybody needs to know about this book. <laughs> it's all just one big warning about the trouble of reading, what it brings on. Yeah. <laughs> it's one way to look at it. So, Todd, I, uh, I started to look into the trivia on this, and I will just say there is too much. <laughs> there's too much <laughs> trivia. <laughs> Even for you, there's too much. That's there's saying too something. Much trivia. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, also, I do want to call out the Wikipedia page on Don Quixote. It has one section that is in popular media, and it mentions Don Quixote uh, or or related works like the play Man of La Mancha are referenced repeatedly in the American HBO drama The Newsroom, which ran from 2012 to 2014. <laughs> that's it for in popular media. That's it? <laughs> which, yeah, that's all it has. Wow. Which uh, I will just say, the influence of this text is a little bit deeper than a few references in an Aaron Sorkin HBO television uh, show. Yeah. Um, well, it was either that or just say pretty much everything. <laughs> well, yes, uh, there is a sub Wikipedia page that is list of works influenced by Don Quixote. And that is, I'm going to say 100 plus <laughs> that, it, that it explicitly mentions in there. Yeah. Um. I just don't understand why the newsroom has its own little subsection on the main Don Quixote page. <laughs> Somebody that was that was like a, an extra on the newsroom is <laughs> works for works for Aaron Sorkin. Like, oh, I, I reference that. I'm just gonna go plug that's that in. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, like of of all of all of the things, it's just <laughs> yeah. It really is. Um, I mean, it's it's pervasive. It's not. I was talking to my students about this the other day. It's not. You can't say that like nothing exists 
without the Quixote, because obviously Quixote is tying into ideas that are pre pre exist it. Yeah, that are extant when he was writing. But it but I think it is fairly safe to say that almost nothing that we have in fiction looks the way that it does without the Quixote. I mean it's it's a monster. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> And I think in like um, American literary studies, uh, it gets underrated. Like we don't we don't talk about it. We talk about British lit. We talk about American lit. And this is Spanish, so sorry, didn't make the cut. Cervantes. Yeah. But when you, uh, so I had never read the whole thing. I'd seen uh, the Man of La Mancha, and I'd seen some adaptation. I can't remember which one. Wishbone. Uh, but so uh, definitely Wishbone. I have one hundred percent seen the Wishbone adaptation. <laughs> So I was familiar with uh, it and like, you kind of can't be a participant in culture without coming across it um, and references to it. I mean, if you're watching HBO's the newsroom, apparently there it is. Uh, um, so I was kind of familiar with it, but I, then it was uh, last uh, a month or two ago. I listened to the entire thing uh, as an audiobook, which is a long audiobook. I, I'll double check the hours on that. It is not a short one, but I also like, I couldn't stop listening. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, keep going, keep going. Uh, and, and so, like, with some audiobooks, it's like, okay, I'm taking a break and go over to the podcast. But this one, it was like, I'm just mainlining Cervantes <laughs> into my ears yeah. uh, until until I was through. Uh, and it is a very, very good text. Um, so some minor, I, I, I said there's too much to but some very minor things uh, that are worth noting. Uh, part one was published in 1605. Part two was published in 1615. Those were translated into English in 1612 and 1620. And there are a lot of English translations. Uh, <laughs> so, Todd, I'm assuming uh, with your studies, you have read the original Cervantes Spanish version. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah uh, uh, two, two or three times. Yeah, there's a couple dozen English translations that are listed um, on on the Wikipedia page. I guess there's probably even a couple that have been missed in that in that collection. Yeah, I think the best one. If we have if if listeners are wondering, like, oh man, there's so many English translations. Which one is the best one? The best one, in my opinion, is done by Edith Grossman. Uh, if you look on Amazon, it's the red one. It's a red one with like a knight's helmet on on the front of it. It's um, what year was 2003 this? translation? That 2003. One. It's really good um and it's a super modern translation and um i think it's kind of surprising when you read it because you think you're going to be reading like shakespeare um and it's not and and it's a deliberate choice uh, by edith grossman uh, because cervantes's spanish is super modern and um and so she just said you know what if it's if it reads modern in Spanish, then I'm just going to make it read modern in English. And so it's really easy to read um, and easy to understand. And it's super long. <laughs> it's super long. So you have to kind of buckle up if you're going to, whether you're yeah. going to read the, uh, listen to the audiobook or read it, um, you're, you're going to be in it for the long haul. But man, it is super good. That is the version I listened to. And on Audible, uh, it was narrated by George uh, Giddall. And it's 39 hours and 37 minutes. <laughs> Okay, it's a and, thousand pages. It's a bit, it's pretty much a thousand pages, both books together. Can I tell you my favorite piece of of Quixote trivia? Uh, please, please this do. Is maybe my favorite. Um, so there are all these uh, lists of like the greatest books, you know, one hundred indispensable novels. 
Um, but there's one, it's my favorite. It's called the Buck Lubin World Library. Um, and this is 100 best books as proposed by 100 writers from 54 different countries, compiled and organized in 2002 by this, by this book club, the Norwegian Book Club. The list endeavors to reflect world literature. I'm reading from the Wikipedia page uh, with books from all countries, cultures, and time periods. So they've chosen 54, uh, 100 writers from 54 different countries. These are like top writers. Uh, each writer had to select his or her own list of 10 books. The books selected by this process and listed here are not ranked or categorized in any way. The organizers have stated that they are all on an equal footing, with the exception of Don Quixote, which was given the distinction, best literary work ever written. <laughs> it's like, so, we're all equal here, except except Don Quixote. Right. <laughs> which I think is astounding. Like, uh, So Dostoevsky has the most books on the list. He has four. Shakespeare, uh, Kafka, and Tolstoy each have three. Um, and Cervantes just has the one, but it's a pretty good one. And really, when you look at the list... Um, they're all listed here in no particular order, but the, but, uh, Quixote is up at the top because he won. <laughs> so it's a good book. And a lot of people have, uh, said so. Yes. Uh, including you on this podcast. Including and me on this podcast. When I, when we were talking about your retirement from the podcast, I mentioned that you would be coming back to talk about Don Quixote and more than one listener was like, oh, good, we need that one. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, you were also kind enough to write this, the full synopsis, which, thank you, Todd. <laughs> thank you so much. Don't thank me. We... Thank, thank Great Saver and Spark Notes and Wikipedia. <laughs> 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 uh, before we move on to that synopsis, listeners, we want to thank you for downloading this episode and for listening. And we want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give monthly updates on our fantasy box office. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And with that, Todd, why don't you tell us all about the plot of Don Quixote? Okay. So, um, like I said, I, uh, I owe a lot to especially Grade Saver for helping me remember some of these plot points. Um, and uh, so this is, starts with book one. So there's this man. Uh, his name is maybe Alonso Quijano or Quejana or Quesada or something. Uh, it's not clear what his name is at the beginning. He's an older gentleman. He lives in La Mancha in Spain. He isn't super wealthy, but he's got time on his hands. So he spends his time reading books of chivalry about knights in shining armor. Uh, but he reads so much that his brains dry up and he decides he will go and be a knight errant, calling himself Don Quixote. So he gets like his that. grandfather's he so much that his brains dry up. That's always the yes. one, right? That's the, that's the, the line from the, from the story. Uh, so he gets his grandfather's old rusty armor and he rides, uh, his old horse who he calls Rocinante out into the countryside. First, he goes to an inn that he insists is a castle and he asks the innkeeper to officially knight him. He also confuses some prostitutes for noble women, and on his way back home, he is beaten and robbed, and a nice commoner helps him back home, where he falls asleep. Quixote's niece and housekeeper, along with his friends, the priest and the barber, decide to destroy Don Quixote's library. When Quixote wakes up, he is concerned about his books, and his niece tells him they were taken away by a sorcerer. Then he decides that he needs a squire, so he asks a common peasant called Sancho Panza to help him out with that, promising that he will name Sancho the governor of an island. 
Uh, then we get the famous incident of Quixote attacking windmills, but this is not his only violent dispute. He is always confusing the world uh, for what it is not and getting himself and Sancho beaten up. And they get just pummeled in this book. <laughs> Uh, then there is a peaceful part where Quixote joins some men in mourning the dead of their friend uh, Chrysostom, I guess. In Spanish, his name is Grisostomo, who died of a broken heart because a woman card Mar- called Marcella wouldn't marry him. Uh, so they go to uh, Chrysostom's funeral, cursing Marcella, but then she shows up and she puts them all in their place. And my goodness, she does quite a job. This is uh, maybe my favorite part of the entire book. <laughs> it's really good. It's really good. Uh, They have a run-in with some horse breeders, and Quixote is seriously beaten, um, so much so that Sancho has to rush him back to the inn. Uh, Quixote again thinks this is a castle, and the innkeeper's daughter is a princess. He also believes that she has promised to come to his bed that night, even though he doesn't want this. (laughs) So he's like, I'm I'm going to be chased, uh, but I know that you want to come and sleep with me tonight, but really, you can't. But he anyway. (laughs) Uh, Then in the night... um, there is a bunch of confusion in the dark as Quixote thinks that this blind hunchback servant girl called Maritornes, uh, she's kind of half blind, is actually the princess who is actually the innkeeper's daughter. Uh, and a brawl ensues in which Maritornes' lover, uh, a mule driver, um, gets in a big fight with Quixote. Quixote passes out. A member of the Holy Brotherhood, who are the old-timey Spanish police. Uh, he gets involved, and he thinks Quixote is dead, but he's not. He wakes up and asks for some ingredients to make the true balsam of Fiera Brás. Uh, he drinks some of this potion, vomits, passes out, and wakes up feeling much better. Sancho drinks the same thing and becomes so sick that he nearly dies. Uh, the next day, Quixote and Sancho leave without paying. Um, Sancho gets uh, held up at the inn, and uh, these people start um, teasing him. And they put him on a blanket and toss him up in the air. His bags are stolen. Um, they have a series of misadventures in which Quixote murders some sheep, loses some teeth, steals a barber's basin, and sets free a chain of galley slaves who proceed to beat him. Then Quixote and Sancho make for the rugged hills slash mountains of the Sierra Morena. Uh, there they meet a guy called Cardenio, who is mourning the fact that his true love, Lucinda, has married a terrible guy called Don Fernando. Uh, Quixote is impressed by Cardenio's commitment to being mad with grief, and he imitates him, stripping off his clothes and running around naked while pining for his lady Dulcinea. He sends Sancho to deliver a letter to Dulcinea, but Sancho instead goes and gets Quixote's friends, the priest and the barber. On their way back to where Quixote is, they meet this woman called Dorotea, who helps them by pretending to be the princess Micomicona and asking for Don Quixote's assistance. The entire party, Quixote, Sancho, the priest, the barber, Cardenio, and Dorotea, all make it back to the inn. They read some long stories that they find there written by Cervantes. So they say, oh, look, there's this backpack here, and it has all these manuscripts in it. Let's see what's in it. Oh, some guy named Cervantes left them here. And then they start reading these stories that Cervantes wrote. Um, There's a bunch of romantic intrigue, but the long and short of it is that Fernando shows up with Lucinda, and everybody gets back with their rightful partners. The Holy Brotherhood comes back looking for Quixote because he had freed a bunch of prisoners, but the priest convinces them Quixote is crazy, and they lock Quixote in a cage and send him home. That's the end of book one. Book two. Quixote is back home, and the priest and barber come to visit him. Sancho arrives with news that there is a book called The Ingenious Gentleman, Don Quixote uh, of La Mancha. There is even a young scholar called Samson Carrasco, who is kind of an expert on the book. This gets Quixote and Sancho all excited about going out on another adventure, so they decide to leave. Uh, First, Quixote decides that they'll go and visit Toboso, where Dulcinea is supposedly from. Sancho doesn't think this is a good idea, 
Uh, but Quixote insists and, and insists and asks Sancho to lead the way since he thinks Sancho knows where she lives. He doesn't. <laughs> Uh, so Sancho grabs this random girl on the road and tells Quixote, hey, this is Dulcinea. Uh, but Quixote doesn't believe Sancho because this girl is ugly and she stinks. She's kind of freaked out by all of this, so she runs off. Then Quixote and Sancho run into a group of actors who are going to perform a play by Lope de Vega called The Court of Death. At first, Quixote and Sancho are scared, but they soon realize that these people are just actors. Uh, they keep going and eventually run into a knight called the Knight of the Woods. This guy challenges Quixote to battle, and Quixote wins, throwing the Knight of the Woods, also called the Knight of the Mirrors, off of his horse. Then they realize that the knight and his squire are really Samson Carrasco and Sancho's neighbor Tom. Uh, they were planning on bringing Quixote home, but they failed because uh, Quixote actually beat Carrasco. Uh, Quixote thinks that all of this is an enchantment. A little later, Quixote uh, kills some sheep in confusion, and he actually faces down a real lion. Um, and then he renames himself the Knight of the Lions. Uh, they attend a wedding where some crazy stuff happens. Um, the kind of things that Quixote's read about in his stories, confused lovers, uh, getting back together again. Uh, and a guy tells Quixote about this cave called the Cave of Montesinos, and Quixote wants to go see it. So this guy Basilio takes them to the cave entrance. It's a hole in the ground. And Sancho lowers Quixote down into the cave where he falls asleep. And when, he finally, when they finally drag Quixote out, he tells Sancho about these visions that he had of magicians and enchantments. Uh, then they meet a duke and duchess, who are the worst, and they have way too much money on their hands and time. And they've read the first book of Quixote, and they want to play a trick on Quixote and Sancho. So they, they mount a bunch of like super elaborate scenes in which they convince Quixote that he's really in a castle living his dream. Uh, for example, they go out on a hunt that's interrupted by a bunch of devils and sages. Dulcinea shows up inside of a carriage, um, but she's been bewitched. And a wizard tells Sancho and Quixote that the only way she can be freed is if Sancho whips himself 3,300 times. Uh, Sancho isn't super excited about this. He keeps putting it off. Uh, later, the Duke and Duchess, um, through their servants, convince Quixote and Sancho to ride on a wooden horse blindfolded. They do this, but the horse is full of firecrackers and the men get injured. Uh, Sancho is actually made governor of a town, and he leads it with a lot of kind of common sense wisdom. Uh, but eventually he leaves, and Quixote gets tortured by cats and by this woman called Altisidora, who has fallen in love with him. And eventually they leave the castle and they make their way to an inn. Quixote calls uh, this one an inn and not a castle. And there they hear people talking about the fake second part of Don Quixote. Um, so we didn't explain this, but... Uh, so Cervantes publishes the first book of Quixote in 1605. And then he... It's a big success. He starts writing the second part of Quixote. And um, he's ready to publish it in 1615, beginning of 1615. But in 1614... Somebody else called Avellaneda, but we don't know who this is because there is no person called Avellaneda. It's a, it's a pen name. Publishes a fake version of the second part of Don Quixote. So it's like fanfic that gets published <laughs> before the, the real one gets published. And at the beginning, at the beginning of, um, at the beginning of the second part in his, in his prologue, Cervantes writes this. He says, um, oh, where are you? First part, second part. He says, um, prologue to the reader. Uh, Lord, save me. How impatiently you must be waiting for this prologue, illustrious or perhaps plebeian reader. Believing you will find in it reprisals, quarrels, and vituperations hurled at the author of the second Don Quixote. I mean the one sired in Tordesillas, they say, and born in Tarragona. But the truth is, I will not give you that pleasure. 
For although the offenses awaken rage in the most humble of hearts, in mine, this rule must find its exception. So he says, you're expecting me to be all mad about somebody writing a second fake part of Don Quixote and to address it, but I'm not going to do that. But then we get to chapter 59, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> and uh, so Quixote and Sancho are in this inn and uh, they hear these people talking about Don Quixote uh, and about the and about all these adventures. And Quixote's like, that's not true. It's all lies. And they're like, no, we read it in this book. And he says, that book is a piece of garbage because I am the real Don Quixote and I'm right here. And uh, it's it's just uh, glorious. Um, and then uh, Quixote and Sancho had been on their way to Zaragoza, which is kind of inland from where they were. Uh, and then he says, you know what? I'm not going to Zaragoza anymore because that's what that dumb uh, fake Quixote says that I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to go to Barcelona, which is like opposite direction out to the coast. So um, on their way out there, they meet this noble Ro- Robin Hoodish thief called Roque Guinard, who escorts them to Barcelona. And they meet this guy called Moreno there, uh, and he makes fun of them. And he says he's got a talking head, like a head on a table that can tell the future. Um, but it's really uh, a person in a box. Uh, but Quixote is like fascinated by this. And then Carrasco uh, returns as the knight of the white moon. And he challenges Quixote to battle on the beach. And he wins. And he forces Don Quixote to swear that he will go home and hang up his armor. So Quixote finally makes his way home. He's super depressed. He gets really sick. And he's on his deathbed with his friends trying to rally his spirits. Uh, the, the friends are trying to rally his spirits by encouraging him to become a shepherd and have more adventures. So they say, Come on, let's go. You're Don Quixote. Let's go have some adventures, Don Quixote. And he says, stop. My eyes are now clear. He says, my name is not Don Quixote. My name is Alonso Quijano, the good, el bueno. And then he dies in peace, the end. So there you go. Oh, thank you, Todd. That, that was a little... I left out like, I mean, there's, it's a there's thousand so page much. book. Yeah, there's so, so much in this book. I try to hit, you know, like the main parts, but really, um, you should just go read it. <laughs> yes, I, I second that recommendation. This this is a really good yeah. one, guys. So, Todd, you've taught this book to, uh, huh? as a college professor, right? Yeah, a couple times. What is the reaction of your students? <laughs> um, it's actually just finished uh, a course at the end of last year. It was a, an honors course called Beauty and the Quixote. We read this um, short introduction to beauty by Roger Scruton, um, like a philosophical kind of review of uh, the idea of beauty. And then we just read the Quixote all the way through. Um, <laughs> I had some students that loved it all the way through. I had some students that loved it at the beginning and then hated it at the end when he dies. like like furious in class fuming uh and i had other students who really didn't like it at all at the beginning uh and it really didn't kind of come together for them until the very end so uh, and this was a like a pretty small class and we just kind of ran the gamut um (laughs) but overall at the end uh, students were um they were like on board with this. Even the stu- even the student that was really mad about the way that it ended, after we talked about it for a while, um, uh, I think that she she came around to it 
or she's a really good liar on her final exam because <laughs> she she wrote a really nice essay about it. But um, uh, yeah, like what one of the things that um one of the students said, he said this this book feels like a mirror. Like you look at it, and your interpretation is always going to be kind of um influenced by like who you are and your worldview and um. Quixote is like really kind of a slippery character. He's hard. It's hard to pin down exactly what's going on with him. It's part of what makes it so interesting. Um, and so uh, it's uh, it's challenging. Like <laughs> it's a it's a really challenging book to read. Um, but if you take it seriously, it's it can be really really rewarding. Um, and that was that was our experience this last semester reading it. Interesting. Yeah, I I can completely understand why you'd get so many different reactions because it's well for one it's so long like mm-hmm. there's plenty of time to get frustrated with don quixote there's plenty of time to like be charmed by him at certain parts uh-huh. uh there there's definitely plenty of, of chances to be just angry <laughs> like why is he doing why is he making the choices uh-huh. that he is making uh and and then like there's also you i think even without being aware of the history of the world in, at large in 1605 or in Spain in particular in 1605, you just feel like there's a lot more going on here. <laughs> this isn't, this isn't just about Don Quixote. This is not just about a madman tilting at windmills. And, and I think the, the weight of that kind of meta commentary that you feel is happening. If you can't quite get a handle on that, I think it could be a very frustrating experience. And there were certainly some times when I was listening to it, where I'm like, I got to go read up on some history. Cause I know this is about something <laughs> that's going on here. And I just don't know enough about Spain in 1605 to really appreciate what is being poked. Uh, yeah. But, but you feel that commentary is happening. Yeah. I mean, Cervantes is definitely a man of his time, but I, I don't, I don't know how much history goes in. And maybe it's just because, because I am familiar with, with the history that those kinds of things don't bother me, but it doesn't seem to me that it's a book that's like, that it's super necessary to know those things. Um, part of, uh, part of the struggle for my students, I think was, um, Quixote became really kind of in vogue in, in, during the romantic period. Um, and there is something kind of romantic, this romantic vision that he has, um, a lot of people have seen the play uh, Man of La Mancha, or they've heard at least heard the song The Impossible Dream. Um, and I mean, I love that song. I really, really love that song. But that the way that that play ends is so different from from the way that this book ends, like uh, like alternate universe different. I mean, it's just. That the 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 play ends with um, he's in his bed and he's dying and um, Dulcinea is there and Sancho and they say oh uh, you we need to go have some adventures and he says no I'm dying and and then they say no and uh, uh, Dulcinea starts singing um, to dream the impossible dream and then he says oh let's go have an adventure get my armor Sancho and then he stands up and then they sing. Uh, they sing the song and then he dies in her arms and it's like, Oh, it's so, you know, this noble vision of this man. But at the end of the, of the novel, it's not that at all. (laughs) He says, you guys, seriously, 
Like God has opened my eyes and I am not crazy anymore. And I would way rather be sane than crazy. So <laughs> like, leave me alone. And then he kind of dies. And and if you have been reading the story all along, thinking, oh, Quixote is this, is this noble vision. He sees so much, so much that nobody else sees. Um, then in the end, when he says, that's not me anymore, then it feels like a letdown, right? Like, what has just happened? I've been so on board with him. Uh, and now he's like left me out to dry. It's, it's feels strange. That's not how I read this particularly. I don't see a lot of goodness in his madness. I see madness in his madness. And, and so in the end, when he says my eyes are clear and I can, I can see the world for what it is now. And God has like pulled me out of my madness. Uh, it feels like redemption to me. It feels like, uh, like he's, I take him at face value. I mean, I, I take him at his word when he says I've been saved. I think, good on you, man. That's way better. It's way better to die peacefully in your bed than like having your face smashed a million times because you constantly misre misread the world. And, and, and uh, he's a really bad knight that gets beat up a lot. <laughs> he does. And, and, um, and that's the thing is that he is so wrong so often. And, um, it, it, it's, so one of the ways to read this is it's a book about books. So the the very prologue, the very beginning of book one, it's a prologue about writing prologues. And this is a guy who reads books and he goes crazy. Um, and so I see it as like a like a great metaphor for reading. And um, there's good ways of reading and there's bad ways of reading and there's ways of misreading. And Quixote is constantly misreading, sometimes maybe purposely misreading and sometimes accidentally misreading. Um, probably more often than not accidentally misreading, especially in the beginning. Um, it's hard to imagine somebody like purposely getting themselves into as much peril as he finds himself. Um, and at the end, uh, he, he learns to like, to see clearly, to read the world clearly for what it is. Um, and so, so that's one way to read it, but, but there is also something noble in him. <laughs> and so you can't, you can't just look at him and say, Oh, like he's a terrible person all the way until the end. Cause he's not a terrible person. He's actually a really good person. Um, and he's kind and he's trying really hard. And that's the thing that makes him so noble. Not the fact that he sees what isn't there, but the fact that he's a good person, uh, in spite of his madness, not because of it, I think. Um, one thing that stood out to me, uh, when, when I was listening to the audiobook is that, like our um our conception of Don Quixote is the man tilting at windmills. And that is almost uh -huh. like a footnote in the story. <laughs> like it happens so early on and never gets mentioned again. <laughs> almost yeah. like or if it does, it's just in passing of like, oh, he's the guy who did that thing. Um yeah. why do you think that imagery is what has taken hold of so much of our imagination about Don Quixote when people reference Don Quixote. Like I remember even in, in, uh, in Mexico seeing like uh, street artists selling these uh, Don Quixote prints that were, you yeah. know, him running at the windmills and stuff like that. Um, I think it's a really good question. Uh, I think there's a visual element. Like it, there is a, yeah, absolutely. It, that was, that's exactly what I was going to yeah. say. Yeah, I mean, um, there's certainly a visual element of it. it. The those those windmills are so iconic of La Mancha, this area in Spain, um, and they're beautiful, and um, and they're huge. 
And so I think visually there's something uh, really kind of iconic about that. Uh, it also stands as a great metaphor for the rest of what happens in the story. And this is the students that I had that were struggling with this book kind of throughout the beginning and the middle and almost all the way to the end were struggling because they were saying like, is this all there is to this book? It's just a guy and he goes out and he, he misreads a situation and then he gets beaten up and then he misreads another situation and then he gets beat up again. And then he misreads another situation and he gets beat up again. And it happens just over and over and over and over again. And some of them are funny, um, but they're only funny if you're not really thinking about thinking about it very hard. Because if you think about it, it's it's way more sad than it is funny. Well, um, and some of it is also like funny in the way Home Alone is funny until you start thinking about what is the physical toll that would literally be enacted if this behavior was right. was taking place on these criminals. Like they'd be dead over and over. And the same for Don Quixote. Like he gets beat up so much. And he's right. not he's not a vibrant, you know, healthy bear of a man, you know, in any of the descriptions. No, he's not. And and the other thing is that he is trying. Like he is good. And he wants to do good. And that combination of He's an older man. Um, his body's already kind of frail when this when this starts, and he's he's trying to do good and constantly just getting pummeled. Um, it kind of wears on you. It wears on me. Uh, if if this book didn't end the way that it does, I would not like it. Not a fraction of <laughs> as much as I do. Um, I find the end just supremely satisfying. Uh, but. But I think that the, the, the episode of the windmills, um, visually, it, it stands out certainly. And then I think it stands as a metaphor for most of what happens in this, you know, 80% mm -hmm. of this book. Well, and I think that like that visual element carries the metaphor so easily too. That's, right. you know, so there's the striking element of a guy dressed like a knight, but really shoddily. <laughs> <laughs> trying to dress himself like a knight and attacking these windmills. And if you're even passingly familiar with the story, you know, he believes these are giants. Um, and so there's like the reality and uh, the madness are on display in a way that's very easily conveyed. So that may be another, you know, one of the reasons that this um, has become one of the iconic passages of this very long text. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. You say, you say um, this sh shoddily dressed, uh, night and uh, it one of my favorite things is um at the beginning of this so he's got his um he's got his helmet and it, he wants his helmet to have the like the mask part in front of it so he kind of fashions this thing and then um and then he, and then he tests it out with his sword and he just destroys his helmet <laughs> and then he and then he fixes it up again with like cardboard and then he he says you know, that looks pretty good. I don't think I need to test it anymore. <laughs> and then he, just puts it on, he puts it on his head. And it's funny. But then I was watching Batman Begins the other day. And um, which is, I mean, Batman is super quixotic, right? Yes. Um, and the first thing that he does in Batman Begins, he, well, he, he goes with Alfred and he gets a suit and he's suiting up and then he gets his helmet. And you remember what happens the first time he goes it out breaks. with his helmet? It breaks. His helmet breaks. And uh, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe it's a coincidence, but I just I don't think so. <laughs> um, so anyway, funny, funny stuff.
Um, I, I do want to dig into Don Quixote a little bit more, but I also want to make sure we talk about Marcella's speech. She is the shepherdess sure. that mm-hmm. um, it's like the second or third of these vignettes. So this is a very um, like episodic vignette laden text. Like it, it, it's not like there's five different threads that are interweaving. <laughs> it's like, here's he goes here. He has this adventure and ends badly for him. And then he travels with Sancho and they go here and they have an adventure that mm-hmm. ends badly. Uh, and so that's just kind of this constant one. And it's fairly early on in the text that they come across this funeral, right? Is it, is it mm-hmm. like yeah. just right after the windmill, practically, if I'm remembering yep. right. Mm-hmm. And the funeral is for a man, as, as you said, in your summary, he dies of a broken heart. And all of his friends are like cursing the woman. They're calling her a temptress saying, you know, she just plays with men. And then, you know, these men give her everything. And, and then they, they, they can't go on because, because she won't love them. Um, and then uh, she shows up at the funeral <laughs> as, as these guys are basically getting drunk and, and bad mouthing her. Uh, <laughs> she walks in and I, I just, uh, I just, googled marcella's speech i'm not sure which uh translation this is so i'm gonna guess it's the one we we're talking about because it feels pretty modern uh but this is the speech or at least the beginning of the speech because it's a pretty long speech that she gives she walks in yeah. and says you all say that heaven made me beautiful so much so that this beauty of mine with a force you can't resist makes you love me and you say and even demand that in return for the love you show me i must love you by the natural understanding which god has granted me i know that whatever is beautiful is lovable but i can't conceive why for this reason alone a woman whose love for her beauty should be obliged to love whoever loves her what's more it could happen that the lover of beauty is ugly and since that which is ugly is loathsome isn't it very fitting for him to say i love you because you're beautiful you must love me even though i am ugly and even if they are well matched as far as beauty goes that doesn't mean that the attraction's going to be mutual because not all beauty inspires love and it just goes on and on from there. And so, I remember listening to this and I'm like, this is like a me too speech, <laughs> um, you know, from, t- from 2018 with the me too movement that was published in 1605. Um, and like, there's so many, like, like, so like think of all the problematic portrayals of love and romance that you've seen on the screen. And it's like, this speech could probably be spoken to a lot of these <laughs> problematic portrayals of love and romance um and, and the the very you know speaking to the very idea idea of the fairy tale version of of love and i was just so impressed that this is present in this text from centuries ago and it was just laid out so plainly <laughs> and perfectly yeah i mean you talk about like reading and misreading you know and how <laughs> this book has been read over and over and over and over and over again. And I don't know that it's been understood very well. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, one example. Another another example of it's just modernity is um, everything that happens, all this meta stuff that happens, especially in the second book. Yeah. Uh, and characters become self-aware. And uh, they're and talking the, about book publication, their story. And they're, they're like making, they're troubling the question of authorship in the very texture. Yeah. And, um, and the Duke and Duchess creating this whole virtual world for Quixote and Sancho and them having to kind of try to navigate that. Um, it's, uh, it raises all kinds of, yeah, questions about authorship, but also questions about agency. Um, and anytime reality, certainly. Yeah. Self-aware characters. Um, and people, you know, people like, Oh, you know, the matrix, so amazing it's like yeah um 
Yeah, it really <laughs> is. You know, <laughs> man, that's really something else. Somebody thought of thought of that. Um, and this this is like I said, it's not like nobody ever thought of these things before. Putting stories inside of stories, or having even even maybe self aware characters, um, but nobody had ever done it like this <laughs> on this scale uh, with this kind of skill. Um, and that's, you know, another thing that one of the reasons why people call this a first modern novel, there, there really isn't anything quite like this before and after there's a bunch of stuff that looks a lot like this. <laughs> um, and then, well, the, and then finally also just to wrap up like that thought of the modernity of it, um, is this idea of pastiche and, uh, like a, a, a work being kind of a, a conglomeration of a bunch of other stuff and you talk about all these vignettes especially at the beginning and they're all like literary vignettes so Cervantes will say we're, we're going to go see these shepherds but I'm going to show that I can write this kind of poetry and this kind of story and then he's going to go do something else and he's like, I'm going to write in this kind of poetry in this kind of prose I'm going to write this kind of story and so uh, it it reads it's like a it's like a catalog of all of the literary genres that came before it. Um, and that they're all kind of smashed together in this book, which is also very postmodern. Yes. I, I was going to say all those things, the like meta narrative, the troubling of authorship and reality and how much we're supposed to embrace the text and just take it or how much we're supposed to be resisting it and pushing back against it and questioning it. And that pastiche, all of those are hallmarks of postmodernism, which became the dominant literary movement, like post-World War II. <laughs> Sure. For, for the rest of the world. And it's like, oh, every single bit of that is here in in uh, Don Quixote. Well, because it's really Baroque. And uh, the Baroque is about asking really hard questions and recognizing the troubling nature of reality. Uh, the Renaissance is about, man, the Romans and the Greeks, they were super smart. And if we just read them, we'll understand the world. Like, the it. world's we not that comp. We got this. <laughs> and then the Baroque comes along and they're like, Hold on, cowboy. <laughs> Not so fast. <laughs> the world is complicated. It's extremely complicated. And even with it at our best, it's really hard to just even know what's real and what's not. And um and so in the Baroque you get people uh expressing um and reflecting the, the complicated nature of reality in art, in music, and in literature. Um, and that's, that's what this is. And postmodernism comes right out of world war two where like we did our darndest to blow ourselves up. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, it was, that was a horrible time. Uh, not, not humankind's finest hour, you know, some people's maybe, but as, uh, as a whole, it was like, my goodness, <laughs> we really like what just happened? That was, that was messed up. And so a lot and, of the, and by the way, guys, we'd already had the war to end all wars. Not that long ago. <laughs> Like we thought we sorted this out. <laughs> right. Uh, and so after World War II, you get, you get a, a period of relative quiet in the 50s where everybody just kind of sits down and thinks and doesn't really talk a lot. And then you get the 60s where everybody is like, okay, now we know that we know nothing. And, and you get all the destruction of the grand narratives and all of what we call now postmodernism comes out of these really 
hard questions about how in the world did that just happen? We thought we understood the world and now we don't know anything. We're capable of killing us, of killing each other on a scale that we, that we never thought possible. And, and how is that? And the models that we had for understanding the world don't seem to be working very well. So maybe none of the models are good. And so we'll throw them all out and then we get postmodernism. So they're, they're kind of, I mean, it's not super surprising that the kind of art that we see after World War II, uh, where people are asking lots of really hard questions, are similar to the 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 kind of art that we see uh, coming out of the Baroque period, which is also a time of you know deep reflection. Um, now, now I can't remember if we mentioned this in a in an episode or if it was when we were chatting before or after a recording, but you told me that the publication of Don Quixote like just completely changed the book publishing industry in Spain. <laughs> like what, what was being, the kind of books that. that were being published before were like, like all those chivalric rom- romances were the rage and, and, oh, right. they were yeah. this. and then this comes out and everyone's like, Oh, we can't do those anymore guys. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> yeah, that, in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I was in grad school, I was, I mean, I, I, I like reading fantasy novels and, uh, you know, like a, like a good nerd. And I thought, man, I wonder what cool, like, cool Spanish fantasy there is. You know, high fantasy. And, uh, and I, somebody gave me, like, an email address of an author in Spain or something. And I said, you know what? Who's writing really great fantasy in Spain? And the guy said, um, nobody has written great fantasy in Spain since Don Quixote was written. <laughs> because he basically just kind of ruined it for everybody. Um, there is really good like fantastic literature written um but not like high fantasy not not tolkien or lewis or um, dragons and fairy tales kind of dragons and fairy tales yeah that that doesn't really exist after quixote as far as i know i might be wrong but that's my understanding that's a pretty powerful work <laughs> to, <laughs> to come out and just say like the most popular genre like everyone's going to be like mm can't go back <laughs> yeah and we, we could I, never look I, at I don't the same that, way again yeah i don't know that this like single-handedly did it um there were other there are other works of um of fiction that challenge the the model um there's a really famous catalan novel that's called tiran leblanc and um and it's a story that's often it's often held up as one of the first kind of modern novels. It feels really different than the, than the things that came before it. Um, and it's a story of a knight, but it's kind of, uh, kind of semi historical. Um, and this guy goes out and he fights in battle, but in the end he like dies of the flu. Um, which is not the way that, (laughs) that those, uh, you know, Amadis de Gaula and these other, uh, Orlando Furioso, these great knights from this kind of fantasy chivalric literature, uh, they don't normally die of the flu. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so there is a sense of kind of realism that's in Spain that predates Quixote, certainly. Um, but but this really is like a, a, a big nail in the coffin. It's not the only one, but it's a big one. Well, I, I wanted us to dig in a little bit into Don Quixote himself because he's uh-huh. like this. I like what your student said about it being kind of a mirror. You're going to see uh-huh. 
some of what you carry with you as you go into it, which I think is true of most texts. Um, you know, your your point in life and your worldview is certainly going to affect your reading of of anything that that you're engaging with. But I it feels like maybe a little bit more with with Don Quixote. It's kind of like all things are equal, but Don Quixote a little bit more. Right, <laughs> it's a little bit more equal than the rest. Uh, sure. Um, because uh, he like there are times where you just kind of want to shake him <laughs> like Don Quixote get a hold of yourself yeah this is not a good life path that you have chosen um but then there's other times where he's actually kind of inspiring right to, yeah to read, absolutely like that that nobleness and um even as like you you see the error of his ways you understand the goodness of his motives uh and, and you see that even there are in some of these episodes it's clearly presented that in his madness he is more noble than the actual nobles who are sane yes right? who are who are self-serving who are hypocrites all these other things and um in his obsession with knight errantry he is demonstrating something that's been lost from spanish culture uh and even as many so many people want to point and laugh as a reader uh, you're seeing well he's actually the better of these that are being held up and then there are other episodes because there are so many episodes of this where you're just kind of like oh oh poor guy <laughs> i really i'm really feeling a lot of pity for him right now yeah um <laughs> i think it's it it really is the heart of this novel is that uh the tension that exists in him between this madness that doesn't lead to good very often. <laughs> um, and especially early on, it's mostly just suffering. It's suffering for him. It's suffering for Sancho. Sancho almost dies. He drinks that, that balsam of Fiera Bras and it, it just about doesn't, like really, he is almost dead uh, because he's throwing up so much and he almost dies. Um, I mean, it's it's hard to look at all of that stuff and say, yeah, this is really good. And, uh, and I tell my, you know, students are like, yeah, but he's such a good guy. And I say, yeah, but if he was your dad, would you, would you really be okay with him doing what he's doing? Like, really, in all honesty. And I think it's hard to answer that question. Yes. If, if, you know, if he's a, a character in a novel, sure. I'm happy to see him suffer and I'm happy to sort of glory in his uh, noble nature. Uh, but if, but if he's like a loved one, none of us would stand for the kind of suffering that he goes through. And we would all take the, take the part of the niece and the, the barber and the priest and even Sanson Carrasco and do what we could to bring him home because He's hurting himself and he's causing all kinds of problems. He lets all these prisoners go. He tries to help Andres, this this guy that's this this uh, servant kid that's getting beat by his by his master. And Quixote comes in. He's oh, you can't do this. And uh, he frees Andres, and then eventually uh, Andres gets caught again, and he gets beat way worse than he, than he would have otherwise. And he's all mad at Quixote. Um, it's hard to point at uh, really specific instances where he tr he's trying to do good and he actually does good. And, um, and that's why, that's why I think it's so important to recognize like the folly in what he's doing. Um, but at the same time, there is something really good, like attractive in him. I love in the very end of this, 
the the narrator says whether Don Quixote was simply Alonso Quijano the Good, or whether he was Don Quixote of La Mancha, he always had a gentle disposition and was kind in his treatment of others. And for this reason, he was dearly loved not only by those in his household but by everyone who knew him. And that to me is like, um, it sums up really well uh, what makes him a great character <laughs> in a great story. And it's not because he constantly misreads things that can be amusing at times it can be kind of thought provoking the thing that ma- that makes him a giant in my mind is that uh he is clearly mad and he's clearly suffering um but even in his madness and in his suffering in spite of that he continues to treat other people kindly he continues to aspire to make the world a better place and it it really endears him, I think, to us as readers, and it's why we kind of suffer with him. Um, we continue to cheer, <laughs> to cheer him on, uh, but it's not because of his madness; it's because of his goodness. And I think that that's um, it's a something that many readers of this novel or people who have heard of this novel don't understand. Yeah, and. Um... We said about like that, that tension that kind of defines it. When I was looking through um, some stuff to try and find some trivia about this, it was just interesting to see some of the swings of how this has been interpreted <laughs> because yeah. I, well, and, and also like your students comment about this can be a mirror. It's not just individuals, but like it whole societies. Yeah. Schools of thought are changed with where society is at at different times. Um, and I went and found it. It was in the first section of the Wikipedia article on Don Quixote it has this paragraph where it says when it was first published, Don Quixote was usually interpreted as a comic novel after the French revolution. It was popular for its central ethic that individuals can be right while society is quite wrong and seen. Uh, uh, it was popular for its central ethic that individuals can be right while society is quite wrong and seen as disenchanting in the 19th century. It was seen as a social commentary, but no one could easily tell whose side Cervantes was on. Many critics came to view the work as a tragedy in which Don Quixote's idealism and nobility are viewed by the post-chivalric world as insane and are defeated and rendered as useless by common reality. By the 20th century, the novel had come to occupy a canonical space as one of the foundations of modern literature. It's just this these kind of pendulum swings um, <laughs> as society is moving as to how people, you know, what is the most popular interpretation of the time? Uh, it's going to keep shifting. Yeah. Because there's enough ambiguity within the text that it can stand up to those different kinds of interpretations, and you can find uh, some uh, some uh, you know textual evidence to support uh, that interpretation, and certain aspects of the text are going to feel more significant depending on what you're experiencing within your society at a time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I, it's, it's a complicated novel psychologically, ethically. <laughs> it's really complicated. Um, and there are multiple valid interpretations of, uh, of what's going on here. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's, it's worth the read. Certainly. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, and I loved the performance of the audible version, uh, that I was listening to. So if you yeah. can get this on audible, it's, uh, it's worth the credit, huh? On audible for <laughs> the, the almost credit. 40 hours of, of content with a really strong performance. Well, Todd, do you have any final uh, thoughts on Don Quixote you want to share with our listeners? I, I don't know. Like, how do you sum? <laughs> how do you sum <laughs> up this book? Um, it's like really you need to read it <laughs> if you have not read this book. 
you really should like put it on your list and then put it at the top of your list and then just say, I'm actually going to actually read this book. Um, and then give yourself some time and be patient. You might be one of those readers who picks it up and is immediately hooked and thinks this is the greatest thing I've ever read and just blows through it. Uh, you might also be one of those readers who um, it takes some time to kind of warm up to it. And it might take you to the very end. <laughs> I had a, I had at least one student who really, until the very last week of the semester, he was like, I don't know about this book. <laughs> and then the, and then we had our very last day where we talked about uh, Quixote's death at the end. And she was like, okay, this is one of the greatest books I've ever read. She was uh, totally on board uh, because of the way that Cervantes kind of tied things up at the end. So, uh, you know, be patient with it. But also, I would say find somebody to talk to about it. Um, because that always helps <laughs> uh, to to just, you know, talk about what you're reading. Um, and especially with a book like this, uh, I think it's worth chatting about. There's so many layers in this book. <laughs> like, I feel like we have a lot more discussion. <laughs> I'd keep just going, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I, I hadn't. Mm, that's something to think about just constantly. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, and also it's like a fun in, book to teach. I'll tell you that. Uh, in doing this, um, this summary of all part one and part two, all for one discussion, like we just kind of, you were hitting the highlights of what happened in each one of these. I think you could do a podcast on each one of these vignettes and oh, yeah. <laughs> just really dig in to each vignette and talk about its context for when it was written, its commentary on popular texts of the time, its impact on future texts that have reacted to Don Quixote, our personal interactions, like all of those could, each one of those vignettes could, could inspire that kind of conversation. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Don't so again, think I don't, don't think for a second that I haven't thought about that <laughs> <laughs> as, a, as a podcast. Oh yeah. Well, if you ever decide to tackle that, I would be uh, happy to be a guest. Okay. I want the Marcella chapter. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us, listeners. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. Uh, we would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 27. We talked about Henry Bemis in The Twilight Zone, or episode number 192, when we talked about Ocean at the End of the Lane. I thought both of those felt a bit... Oh, man, I love Ocean at the End of the Lane. <laughs> you said that, and I thought, oh, man, that book is so good. I've, uh, like I said, I, I graveyard book was maybe my favorite when we recorded that episode, but I keep thinking about ocean at the end of the lane since we, since we did that <laughs> recording it might be rising in my opinion. A very good book. Yeah. Uh, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonist pod at Jay Dorowski and our producer, Andrew is at Diz minute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We enjoy our conversations there with listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary, monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long.
How was that for a one sentence summary? I think you should. I think you should take another run at it. His name isn't Alonso Quixote. In the beginning of the book, he it doesn't. They don't know what his last name is. 